This episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by 3M. You may know 3M for scotch tape and post-it notes, but their technology helps improve people's lives in many ways. 3M has accelerated their global production of N95 respirators to support those on the front lines of the pandemic, and they expect to produce 2 billion respirators globally by year-end. Learn how 3M is helping the world respond to COVID-19 at 3M.com slash COVID. That's 3M.com slash COVID. The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always. Um, it's been a long time since we've talked to this gentleman, our good friend Corey Lee, of several restaurants now in San Francisco. He will talk about that in a second. What is this now? Third time in, in uh, seven, eight months. And um, I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about. I think we're going to talk a little bit about... State of affairs, probably make fun of each other a bunch, and um, who knows what else. But uh, this is our conversation with Corey Lee, who I see on Zoom, and we are joined with Chris Ying. Welcome, Corey. How you doing, man? Corey. Hey, Dave. <laughs> Good to be here. Back good, huh? a bit of a technical. <laughs> doing that well. Bit of a technical nightmare today. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was giving him shit. He's got a three mission star restaurant with uh, no rating Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, Times are tough right now. <laughs> you got to economize a little bit. Um, yeah, we've done that too at, at all our restaurants. We've God, who knew broadband was so fucking expensive? Um, <laughs> Did you even check how much it was before? No, I didn't know. I actually, <laughs> I didn't know. It, it, I mean, I would have yeah. known like 10 years ago, but now when you aggregate it with a bunch of restaurants and you really need it for the credit card processing, it's pretty crazy. So yeah, we yeah. basically have, if you put on two computers in, in one of our restaurants, it just shuts down. So that's where you're at too. So <laughs> hopefully not quite, but pretty close. So what are we talking about today, Dave? Well, wait, wait, before that, I forgot. Sorry. Corey was saying something and then we'll get into this. You said you did not expect that we'd be in this shitstorm for as long as we have been, right? Well, I mean, before, before Ying got on, Dave and I were just catching up for a second. And we realized it's been, what, six months since we did this the first time? Yeah. And uh, when, we were, when we were talking, I think we both were pretty aware that this was going to get bad and, and how severely it would affect our industry. But I wouldn't have guessed that six months later, all of our restaurants would still be closed with no guidelines on when the city of San Francisco would reopen. Um, obviously, in some other areas, there have been a, a kind of a, a gradual reopening, but I didn't know it would last past the summer, well into the fall, without any kind of goal in mind in terms of when we would reopen. So it's, it's, it's definitely a lot worse than I had anticipated in terms of being able to reopen one day. What did you think, Corey? Did you have a, a, a date somewhere in the back of your head about when you would see reopening or anything? Yeah, so uh, March 13th, I believe, is when San Francisco started the shelter in place. And then I knew it would be at least, you know, at least a couple months, maybe three. And then when we were in about May or June, we had made enough changes to the restaurant to kind of hibernate for this period. 
that I knew it would take a lot longer to kind of reopen than it would if we were just closed for a month in terms of staffing, inventory, just kind of reassessing the menu for the times, all those things. Um, so I kind of had this like idea of opening in August and August 10th was the target day for me back then because that also happened to be our 10th anniversary and it would be kind of a nice, nice day to reopen. I mean, that's just for me. No one cares that it's August 10th. You know, no one gives a shit. I care a great deal. But that was kind of like the date I had in my, my, my head for probably, um, up to like the beginning of the summer. And then when the first date for, uh, potentially reopening passed without even a single comment from the city, I realized it's going to be pretty bad. Yeah. And that's kind of the situation we've been in. Well, I mean, I know it's no consolation whatsoever, but first of all, like, Congratulations on ten years, man! It's it's one of the most important restaurants uh, I think in the planet, and and well, the, the appreciate you saying is, that. I mean, it's yeah, ten years it goes by quickly, but it also, I mean, you know, you can also feel a lot of things like it was yesterday, especially right now. Yeah, I mean, secondly, the second thing I want to say is, you know, I <laughs> Chang and I both know you to be a very respectful, empathetic, and and you let your work do the talking, but you have posted a few kind of like pointed things on Instagram about about the lack of any kind of information or clarity from, you know, our shared city, San Francisco, like in your conversations with other chefs, how do you think our neck of the woods is doing relative to others? Well, I think that, uh, um, uh, San Francisco is, is being very cautious and, and that's a good thing. And I think where the city has failed, where our, our, our health department has failed is in the lack of communication. Um, I think there were just operations that were wondering, you know, when we reopen, we get one week notice, one month notice. And if the city knew already that they weren't going to reopen a portion of restaurants when they're two weeks out, I think you should be forthcoming with that information because people are making business decisions like this based on, on, on what the city tells them or, or doesn't tell them. Um, and in this case, it's, you know, it's unfortunately um, just hasn't been very communicated in terms of giving us any kind of uh any kind of insight on what the future holds in the next, uh, in the short term. Um, and I think, I think basically what happened, uh, you know, part of it is our fault, right? I think the industry in San Francisco in some ways put itself in this situation. And I say that because if you look at the timeline of when we closed, uh, San Francisco came out with a required closing on March 13th, right? Mm-hmm. But I think restaurants in the city were already closing, you know, several weeks before that. And they were closing on their own accord saying for the health and safety of our staff and our guests, we decided to close. And I think, I think that's certainly partially correct, but I think they left out the part that's very important, which is that their business was suffering so bad that they had to close. And that wasn't really talked about. So if I'm a city official and I'm hearing the loudest voices in San Francisco saying they're voluntarily closing, and I don't really feel any pressure to kind of reopen for business uh, because they closed before the mandate went into play. So I, I think that, you know, especially during a time like this, we just have to be really open and honest about things. I think a lot of chefs are, are very um, uneasy about talking about the economics of a restaurant. And we make business decisions all, all the time. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're a business. And I think that had to be part of the messaging when we first decided to close. Um. The entire time you've been talking, uh, obviously, I've been nodding in, in agreement. And, you know, when we first started this whole thing, I have obviously been more doom and gloom than most. And it's a terrible thing to be right about, about 
just how bad everything has been. Even in my most dire predictions, I had scheduled September 1st as a reopening date. Also, financially, what we were able to sort of float until that point. And now everyone, including yourself, is pivoting and, and without an end date. No one really knows. And ultimately, we're at the mercy of science and medicine to figure something out because we cannot depend on the government. I, I think it's very clear why there's some people that are knowledgeable and smart and full of integrity in government. It's been a comedy of errors. And I don't necessarily say it's our fault because we closed early. Uh, yes, some places might be doing poorly on business, but we we shut down way before anybody else. And it was sheerly out of safety because, you know, I, I was talking to many of the people that you know in Asia, and I was like, this is this is this is gonna get out of control. So I, I am actually more upset at the government simply on that transparency and the lack of any kind of preparedness whether it's 25%, 50%, no one, it just shows you they don't know the economics of the restaurant industry at all. Well, that's what it is, Dave. I mean, I wasn't saying it's our fault we're in this situation. I'm just saying we contributed to our local governments not being as communicative as, as they could have yeah. been if, if we didn't come out on our own accord before the mandate went in place. And it's really the communication. Now, I mean, I, I totally understand um, the city being very cautious and I support that. Right. I do think that there could have been much more forthcoming with that yeah. information about we're definitely not going to close in June, guys. So get ready for at least a minimum of two months and then we'll review. I mean, even that would have saved probably a total of millions of dollars across all these restaurants that yeah. were pivoting to these programs that necessarily didn't really make sense business wise, but they try to kind of float their staff and they probably made decisions based on thinking they might have a chance of reopening when in fact it probably was not even a consideration of uh, reopening at that time. So. You know, I don't want to talk too much about this because I think everyone yeah, yeah, that yeah. listens, no, but it's important, right? It, there's a reason why we haven't talked too much about all of this because it's incredibly depressing. And but what do you think is going to happen, man? I mean, your insights through the business are are very sharp, and I think if we don't talk about the realities of what worst case scenario is, how are we ever going to be prepared? Well, okay, so I think. When this thing first started, we we heard and we saw these figures come out about what percentage of small businesses would not reopen and what percentage of restaurants would not reopen. And people were predicting, um, even as early as March, 65% of the of the restaurants would not reopen. And and that's probably on the low side now, if you think about it, right? I mean, I think that's very real. I think any kind of aid that was given was was not intended or structured to last this long. It was meant to last a couple months. And then they changed a little bit and last maybe, you know, four months, um, but certainly not this long. And, and our businesses, our restaurants in general are just not designed to be closed for that kind of time. Um, so I don't see, you know, how we're really going to recover with a good majority of our, our existing restaurants being in a position to reopen. So I think that is the reality. I think it's just going to be this period of, you know, kind of rebuilding. The dining culture and 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 this industry and that's going to take a, you know years. It's going to take a long time. I also think it's going to bring usher in kind of a whole new generation of of people who are wanting to work in restaurants, and also kind of be a catalyst for an entire generation of of industry people who are going to be leaving the industry and finding something else to do. I think we're really at the crossroads right now. One thing I've seen you do 
in the face of these kind of extremely dire circumstances, Corey, is <laughs> I see you still posting the occasional thing on Instagram of, of a dish that you're just trying out that's not for takeaway. It's for this hypothetical day that you reopen and welcome guests back into your dining room. Like You're still unable yeah. to stop churning and trying new stuff, man. You know... <laughs> I mean, I'm really proud of like the takeout program we're doing. I think we're doing really nice stuff and, and it's interesting, but I just can't, you know, think entirely and solely about like takeout food. I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I sometimes get a little burnt out on that. Um, so it just, but we are actually, we are actually um, working on some stuff. Um, a lot of it's because we've uh, basically been keeping a lot of our employees um, without really necessarily needing them the volume that we're doing in our existing programs, right? So we have this incredible pool of talent that's probably just like, uh, you know, a little bit overkill for what we what we need to operate um, a takeout program. So we're trying to be productive, you know, and it's, it's I think it's still good for everyone to go uh, to not completely lose touch with that radio process. So that's, you know, it, it, a lot of it's for morale. Some of it's, I mean, a lot of it's for my personal morale. Yeah, I mean, can you you want you want to talk to us a little bit about some of the stuff that you've been working on for your personal morale? Uh, not really. I mean, not, <laughs> I mean, do you? I mean, that sweet potato you posted the other day looks sick, man. <laughs> it looks very good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I look forward to being able to eat that someday. Wait, what was that? It was a sweet potato, and I scroll by immediately because I, I said I don't want to know what the fuck you made because it'll just make me angry, and I just hope. <laughs> I was hoping, I was like, oh, Corey just got a very good sweet potato and roasted cut it now. That's what I think you did. No, you know, so I've been working on this, like a dessert with sweet potato. And the first version was this sweet potato that was baked inside of uh, like a, a very flaky short crust pastry. And then we brought that thing to the table. We opened it up and you get the aroma of this thing that's been baked in the shell of a pastry. They scoop out a piece of this roasted potato, take the crust it was baked in, and put it on top of there. And then there's a tableside server of ice cream and some different sauces and stuff, right? And it was just like this hot, cold, kind of like nostalgic flavors, but presented in a really different way. Um, and that was like the first version of it, but it took too long to service. And so we, we, we've, we've been trying to capture like that, that dish in a way we can do it for, for more people and in a more efficient way. So we were working on that for, for a couple of months and then it turned into like different versions of potato roasted and pastries. And then, and then, and then I think like the pandemic and, and the situation we're in is a big part of kind of wanting to strip down some of the, some of the, um, decoration in, in, in cooking or at least in, in how I'm thinking about, um, what kind of menu I would want to reopen with. And it's trying to capture kind of the essence of, of something. And really it's, it's, it's the aroma and the flavor of sweet potato and doing something hot and cold with that. So I've been cooking a lot at home, like we were talking about last time. And I cook out a lot outside because it's so easy to do. And I've been roasting taro root and, and sweet potatoes on the grill. And we've been eating them as dessert, just like scooped out and dipped in sugar, um, which is really a, a great way to have taro root in, our, in a sweet preparation. It's like creamy. It's just, it's, it's just like another iteration of, of that. Um, but it's really a roasted sweet potato. And then we, we sprinkle on uh, sugar and roast it and the sugar with some cold ice cream or something. But we haven't served yet, so who the hell knows what it's going to be. This is just like, it's like a fantasy. We're just talking about a fantasy right now. Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I ask, Corey? Like, I, I've been thinking a lot about the meaning of what we do besides the craft, right? 
now I want to talk just about sort of the artistry of it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, you know, when Ying texted me a few days ago and he's like, hey, hey let's, let's get on and, and, and talk and maybe we can talk about Dave's roles for being a, becoming a chef. And, uh, you know, and congratulations on that, by the way. I mean, I think it's going to be a, a really influential book. And I really didn't know what to expect when, when Ying said, you know, Dave's rules for becoming a chef. I was like, Dave's got rules for becoming a chef? What's, what's going on here? He was and, actually, uh, he was so eager to see it, man. He was like, send this to me. Send it to me right now. I need to see this right now. I, I really, I thought it was going to be different than it actually is, you know? And when I, when I received it, I was actually really struck just about how thoughtful it was. And it, it you know, it was a great reflection on who you are and the journey you've been through and how much you've changed over the years from being a cook to a, a first-time entrepreneur. And now really someone in history has a very unique perspective on things. And you know, it all came through. And I think like just, just the humanity was very palpable in the writing. And so I really appreciated reading that and thank you for doing that. Uh, but why I brought that up just now is because I think there's this, I forgot what number role this is, but this is, you talked about how at the end of the day, you were telling cooks that you're an artist. And, you know, that, that made me pause for a second because I'm not sure if you're talking to a young cook who's reading this book or you're talking to basically yourself, right? So who are you talking to? And, and you know, I'm really curious about that. And I'm also curious, when did you write this? Before the pandemic, for sure. <laughs> okay. And how long did it take you? Just this portion of it, how long did it I, take I've been thinking about this stuff. I mean, a lot of it's just regurgitated points and ideas that I've had or thought about, even talked about on this podcast. So it's probably gelled the past couple of years in terms of what that yeah. was going to be. But I would say, first and foremost, the reason why... I didn't realize there was a conflict was the idea of artistry versus craftsmanship. And when I became yeah. a cook, it was about being a craftsman. There was no artistry. That's what I thought. If there, you know, the idea of finesse would have been still under the spectrum of craftsmanship, but they're still on the same spectrum, but craft is on the other side and artistry is on the other the opposing structures. And the more I thought about it, you go two ways. One is you can be a shokunin, you can do the same thing over and over. And in some ways, that is artistry. I think at the end of the day, I was allergic to the idea that you could merge expression in food, even though I know that you can express you know, yourself and your ideas in food. And the more I began to think about it, as I began to study a lot more about art and other parts of culture, I just felt that the nouveau cuisine and the past sort of 40 years ever since the Tuagro brothers, that while it was a business, while it was craft, while it was tradition, while it was all of these things, it was all storytelling. And I, I feel that mm. that's what a chef is. A chef in some ways is a content creator. And when I think about all the ways food has evolved and the way things are plated and the way there has been movements and rejections of movements, it really follows a pattern of what you've seen in other parts of culture, whether it be fashion or more specifically, the world of art, you know, high-end art as well. So I just began to see it as, at least in my career and how I was speaking to myself as well, but also if I had to go back in time and talk to younger Dave Chang, I would have definitely not agreed with anything I said in the 33-year-olds because I, I, yeah. I didn't want to become a cook to express myself. It was more about everything else. It was about 
learning something that was outside myself. And I think at, at some point when you have the foundation and the ability to say something, right, to express yourself, it does become artistry. And I do know what I'm saying is very controversial for a lot of chefs. I've had this argument with people. People are like, what? no, you're, you're an idiot. You cannot say that. And I totally respect that. I do. I, I think it's important, though, whether I'm right or wrong, and I'll admit, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, it's important that we start to frame things in a new way about how we understand our profession. Okay, so if, if you, as a young Dave Chang, read these rules that you just wrote, yeah. would that have changed your career? Would that have changed the kind of chef you are right now? Because I think it would have. I think so. I think so because no one told me any of this stuff, right? Right. We didn't have any insight. But I think it's part of it is the learning of these things. Hmm. And yep. you're looking back on it and it's the process of transitioning from one state of mind to another that I think is really important. And having known you for a while now and even dining at, at your first restaurant, um, and seeing kind of, you know, this progression in your career, not only in your career, but just, to, just you as a person, I think that it's, it's the change that's really affected you. Um, so I don't know if you can just go back and just, you know, give this information to someone, have the same kind of impact. It's like if you had listened to every single thing your parents told you was right, would you have gone right. through life sort of like more safely and with less pain? Sure. Would you be a less fully formed and interesting person? Yes. Like you would not have experienced any of the any of the hard lessons, I think is what you're saying, right? If Dave just had the benefit of, of hindsight, like he wouldn't be him. No, or there's a certain mentality that's important and is actually really, really beneficial at a certain period of your, of your life and only for that period of your life. And then it's important that you don't get stuck there or you'll never really evolve or progress. But for that brief moment, whether it's whatever, a year, uh, several years, or your 20s, or whatever, it, you know, whatever, whatever you want to, uh, whatever you want to say, I mean, I think that you can have a different outlook on things. And it doesn't mean that you have to be stuck in that way. So, you know, I just, it just, it's just something that I was thinking about. Outside well, let's, let's, let's try something here, if, if you don't mind. So first, for listeners, I wanted to give a little bit more context, just because we didn't provide it yet. But in the last section of Dave's uh, recently released memoir, there's a chapter called 33 Rules for Being a Chef, which is inspired by and, and frankly, just totally copped off of Jerry Saltz's uh, format for 33 because Rules. Because for- in, in his 33 Rules, he said it's okay to copy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but also, you know, if it's important that you, I do, I, I sent it to my team and I send it to cooks, read his 33 Rules, because here you have someone that has spent his entire life studying art history and the movements and talking to the greatest living artist and what makes them tick. And he himself being an artist as a writer, right? So if you really read that, that could be applied to cooking very easily. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I love about that sort of cooking as art thing, and, and I remember actually the exact day that Chang called me and was like, I figured out the whole cooking and art thing. <laughs> and it's not about like, do the swooshes on your plate look like visual art? It's not about like, does the the physical appearance of food look like art? It is about the creative process and taking the craft of cooking with the sort of giving it the respect and uh, seriousness of a fine artist and also being aware of the tradition that from which you spring because all modern art, I mean, Corey, one of your restaurants is in a modern art museum. Like all modern art is about art. (laughs) 
it's all about like the awareness of where it stands in the pantheon of, of what came before it. And I think like when Dave kind of, I mean, you know, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but like when he sort of saw that in, in the context of things like, okay, California cuisine, what does that really mean? What, why was that actually, now it feels a little outdated or like obvious, but what was it at that moment? You but know, yeah, like but, 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 but Chris, and again, even adding more to that, as I think about this all the time, it's movements, right? There, there, there are times and places where you're like, I now have something to say because I have a, a perspective of the past that I didn't quite see. And all of a sudden, however I was going to express myself in painting, in literature, in film, on a plate, no longer works anymore, right? And like that mere fact of being aware and cognizant of patterns of expression means that it is art in some way, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Corey, we can go every year for the next past 40 years and show the evolution of how things were plated and how things are cyclical. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that isn't art. You're following some medium along the way and it's being influenced by external forces. And I know it sounds like a m- lot of mumbo jumbo, but I'm currently at a place now where I think I do understand art better because I've been in the industry long enough. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, what I'm talking about. So I think the potential for cooking to be some expressive or artistic form in all the great chefs that I know was something they realized later in their career. Yeah. That's not what drew them into cooking. That's not what made them work in a restaurant. That's not what made them want to open a restaurant one day. Uh, And I think that's tied to, like, the first thing that you talk about in, in your 33 rules, which is, like, you know, being a chef is only partly about cooking because I, I, I would argue that if your personality is, is in such a way that that is what you're drawn to, the chances are you're never going to get to a place where you actually can use cooking as a, as a medium of expression and art. Because along the way, there's this incredibly long and difficult and physical process that you're just, you're going to find a different way to express yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'll get a paintbrush. I'll, you know, I'll learn the piano. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, so, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm talking about. So if that's why I say, I was asking, like, are you talking to yourself now or are you talking to a younger? I think it's, it's, it's certainly younger, but also, also I'm uh, still on the journey too, which is why I, I sort of leave it open-ended because the worst thing you can do is say to a younger person or even to yourself, these are immutable laws that will never change. Yeah. And you say right. so in the right. back. You're like, I hope this is all just moot. <laughs> this will probably all change and I look forward to being completely wrong about all of this soon. Yeah, look, it does, so many of the rules don't even apply anymore in a post-pandemic <laughs> world. Like, <laughs> like you said in your book, I don't know how many times I've been asked, you know, how do you become a chef? And I, I did something for Danielle Baloud's book. It was uh, Letters to a Young Chef or something yep. like that. And, and I started out saying, like, if there's something else you're able to do, do it. <laughs> you know, because I truly believe that. And, and this is kind of a sensitive topic. You know, you know, obviously, there's been a huge conversation and a dialogue about how our industry becomes more in- inclusive. And, yeah, I think that's important. But I've, I've also, at the same time, asked myself, inclusive in what? Like, I want to attract people to this industry to share what with them, the hardship, you know, and I think everyone's so busy trying to make this an inclusive industry, but it's not an easy industry to be in. I totally agree. Like, wh- why do you want to be in this business? That's what I'm trying to oh, say. I hear, no, that, that's kind of my, that's kind of my point. You know, I mean, 
know, you talk about having a much more inclusive industry, but I'm trying to warn people not to come in here at all. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I've been talking about. You're an equal opportunity dissuader. It doesn't matter who yeah, you are. Yeah, I'll yeah, tell you yeah. not to do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Who, here's the thing. Who knows if these are even relevant anymore? Because when life starts again in a post-COVID world, is everything that we care about even meaningful anymore to anyone? Well, we, we don't. I mean, I don't know. I can't. I mean, it's just something I've learned in the last six months is that I can't predict anything, you know. Um, but I can say that the last years, the last 10 or so years have really been about excess in our industry. You know, too many restaurants opening, fueled by media, fueled by social uh, media, promoting you know, all kinds of different trends and, and, and new ways of running a restaurant, different kinds of program. And there seems like there's this insatiable appetite for all this and this infinite audience who's, who, who are going to come to these restaurants and more people entering in, in the industry. And it's just built up in such a way where it's not supported by anything real. You know, we don't have diners who can support all these restaurants. We don't have cooks who can work in, in all these restaurants. And it's just been, I think, kind of an unhealthy way for this industry to grow um, in the last decade. And it's just been, there's been so much excess. When you say that, Corey, do you feel yeah. that you are part of that excess too? Like, do you find your own fault in that at all? Well, I think there's no question that I've benefited from some of that, you know, consumer mentality, industry mentality. There's no question about that. But I think just generationally, I'm a little bit out of it because when I fully committed to being a chef and being in the industry, I think it was a different dynamic back then. Um, so whether this decade happened or not, my point is that I probably would still be in a kitchen somewhere um, right now, wondering if we're going to reopen. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's kind of yeah. like what's happening, you know, what happened with in the retail side or with fashion, you know, there's just been like all these different fashion brands coming out and like, Oh, this inventory of stuff no one's going to buy. And it's kind of like with restaurants too. I mean, I think, I think they're similar. Um, exactly. And it's been, it's been fueled by the, by media and social media where there's this very inaccurate portrayal of this industry just having no boundaries and consumers having no limit to often they want to dine out and how much they want to try a new concept. And it's just not true. And, and it's come to a, a point where, you know, it's come to a tipping point on that. Accelerated by the pandemic, of course. But Yeah, all this, all, everything you just said was going to come to an end regardless. I, I agree, yeah. There's no way it was sustainable. But, I, you know, there's going to be a rebuilding. And that's kind of what I was saying when we first started is that I think it's going to usher in a whole new generation of people who want to work in restaurants and also be the catalyst for a whole generation leaving the industry. And unfortunately, you know... <laughs> I'm here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> not picking up that piano, huh? Uh, it's, it's too late. It's not coming. Yeah, I, I, can barely, I, I, I can barely figure out the Zoom call. <laughs> I mean, putting the pandemic side of it to the side yeah, here let's for a talk, second. I, yeah, well, I mean, let's talk about something else besides the pandemic. I mean, there, there's, maybe we can shift the uh, conversation a bit. What do you think? What do you guys think? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to think about anything else here. Well, I, I, mean, I want to talk about. I want to talk about this amazing thing that that you guys worked on, which is yeah. Can I? Okay, know, so uh, can we try this thing that I wanted to try now? 
now that we're yeah, sure. 47 40 minutes, minutes into it. <laughs> yeah. What I would like to do is I would like to read one of these rules, Corey's pick. Is, is there a rule in here, Corey, that you uh, got a little bit of a disagreement with at all? Is there anything in here that you feel like you could um, provide a different perspective on? I would like to hear... What is this, it, fucking Fox News? What are, <laughs> I want Crossfire. <laughs> I'm trying to get ratings, Chang. Crossfire. Why are you doing this to us? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll pick a rule. I'll pick a rule. And what I would like to do is like, I want to hear like that, that perspective you talked about, Corey. What the young version I, of I, you... I got one. I got one. All right, I got All right. One. All right. which one? And mainly, mainly because I want to ask Dave about it. All right, hit me. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Which one? Okay, let's, let's go to rule 17. Don't edit in your head. All right. I will, I will read it really briefly here. Rules number 17 for being a chef is don't edit in your head. Uh, there's a James Joyce Ulysses quote up here just because, uh, you know, we had to. A man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. Chang says, let me build on something I've said multiple times in this book. There are bad ideas, but all ideas are worth chasing. Sometimes when you're sure a certain idea will be a failure, you end up surprising yourself and it turns out better than you thought. But I promise that if you take the idea as far as you can and try as many ways of getting there as possible, at some point you will learn something that makes it worthwhile. I see so many young chefs who dismiss a thought without first seeing how it turns out. Every dish and service is an opportunity to collect data. It's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. Yeah, and, and oh yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, that's just masking the idea that for you to truly have something to say, for you to truly have something original to say, you have to weirdly not suffer. You have to, you have to earn it. Yeah, I guess I guess I read that pretty differently <laughs> because I think I, <laughs> when I read that, I thought you meant you imagine this idea and you're trying to realize it, but. You have to go through the physical process of trying out first, being able to go through that process in your head and edit that process. Because for me, the ability to actually do a lot of that physical work in my head is, is I think, my greatest asset as a chef. But Corey, you were able to, you were able to get there because you fucked it up so many times before. Well, I know that's my, that's kind of my point. Yeah. Is that like, yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying no. I'm saying you are a different person. You can still edit in your head. You have theories and ideas, but you have, again, so many data points that you physically have done that you don't necessarily always have to go into that. It's very different when you're talking to someone just doing it for the first time. Oh, yeah. So, and that's part of it. Like, who are we talking to, you know? So let's yeah, the young talking cook, to me. So. Cause, because I'm not a young cook, but I was totally engaged in reading this, right? Yeah. And I'm part of your audience. So I want to read it. And I want, you know, to read what your idea of the 33 rules for becoming a chef are and, and for it to be relevant to me. So obviously, I'm going to interpret it in my own way versus a 20-year-old uh, person that's first coming to the industry. So when I read that, I'm thinking, huh. I had it in my head all the time. <laughs> so, well, can fuck I, you, Corey. This is not about you. You were... <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're talking to, like, the guy that... The one fucking person this goddamn 33 rules doesn't apply to. Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Let me, let me, let me speak to... Um, but, but, you it, know what? You know what? We're, we're arguing over semantics here. You know, like, yeah. I think I think no one... I mean, Dave and I could probably talk about this for a long time. And Chris is the only one in the world who's going who's gonna to get it, right? <laughs> So, <laughs> so let me speak to no no no, no. You're, you're right and so let me ask you this thing Corey. let me speak to young let yeah. me speak to young Corey if he's in there somewhere um yeah. young Corey lee who is pretty green in the kitchen if you no, have that idea, never happened ne that never happened <laughs> he was born fully formed he was born a fully <laughs> never formed happened three Michelin young Corey lee, 
sabotaging <laughs> that motherfucker. That's true. who he was. <laughs> it should also be said that, that current Corey Lee still looks like young Corey Lee <laughs> has not fucking aged a day. Um, when you're when you were younger, even though now you can edit, now you can play things out in your head. You can, and so can Dave. Dave can Dave can uh, imagine how a dish is going to go, and he does it all the time. But young yeah, Corey Lee, if you have an idea. Are you? Do you feel like maybe you are more willing than your colleagues to try it out, to let it play out, and to get like how how eager is young Corey Lee to like? I've got an idea for a dish. I'm gonna try to make it. I think I was probably pretty eager, uh, perhaps even more eager because I didn't really get the opportunity the way I think young cooks did today. I think you know having that conversation with a young cook just didn't happen like 20 years ago. No one cared what like. You know, yeah, Comey or uh, even like a chef to party, you know, w- w- was was thinking for the new menu. Um, you weren't you weren't in, even part of that dialogue. Whereas now I think um, it's a little more inclusive and there actually is that conversation happening in a lot of kitchens. So I think I was eager because I was denied the opportunity to be able to try some of these ideas I had. And it was just yeah. kind of like, wow, that, that would be really you know interesting to try or or one day I'm going to try a technique like this, but you don't get the opportunity to try it. Whereas even in our restaurant, people actually have the time and we give them the resources to try out a technique or try it out an idea, really for no other reason than to satisfy their curiosity. Well, it does sound like young Corey Lee just made Dave's point. So maybe the person we need to be speaking to is the, the yeah. other version of Did Corey. I? Did I? Did I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. The best teams start with great talent, but finding the right people can be a challenge. It's like what sports scouts are doing. Sports scouts now have to research top athletes across the country and scour hours of video footage to find potential picks for pro teams. I would love that job. But when it comes to hiring for your business, ZipRecruiter can help you find the right candidates for your team fast. From healthcare to manufacturing to business services and more. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 top job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by 3M. You probably know 3M for scotch tape and post-it notes, but did you know that 3M is also a leading provider of personal protective equipment and medical solutions for healthcare workers and first responders? Since the outbreak, 3M has accelerated production of N95 respirators, disinfectants, and hand sanitizer, helping to support the critical needs of those on the front lines of COVID-19. 3M's plants are operating 24-7, and they expect to produce 2 billion respirators globally by year-end. 3M is also supporting communities around the world with cash and product donations through humanitarian aid partners, including a $10 million donation to Direct Relief's 
COVID-19 fund for community health, providing community health centers with direct financial aid to support healthcare workers. 3M Science Applied to Life. Learn how 3M is helping the world respond to COVID-19 at 3M.com slash COVID. Another thing, too, when you can add to this, I mean, I'll give you an example. I think probably like five times in my career, I've seen someone be like, dude, I made a sauce with cooked egg yolks. I'm like, no, you didn't. That's been done. That's been done before. <laughs> you didn't You didn't make shit, dude. <laughs> you mean sauce curbiche? What the fuck? You know, like it happens so many times where some cook is like, dude, I did it. I Check it out. I'm like, no, you didn't do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> You've done nothing. <laughs> You've actually shown that you know nothing because <laughs> you thought learned anything about the the, the canon of uh, of cuisine. Can I can I put you both on the spot here and ask if there is any sort of memory that springs to mind of a time when you were trying something out in the back of your head thinking like this is probably not going to work or like I don't know how this is going to turn out and were surprised for the good like oh shit this worked or oh shit I learned something else like what what can you can you make real the benefits of not editing in your head? Well, I, I'm going to say this. I know for sure Corey doesn't fucking do the shit that I do about making a special <laughs> at fucking putting a special on the menu at like 4.30. Sure as shit, I know he doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, he's, he's way more calculating than me. Like, I, I, I do that all the time because, and I put those people in positions where they don't have an opportunity to overthink. And oftentimes that's like version number one, right? And you, you know, you, you mise en place out like five or six things and, you might give it to friends of the restaurant or whatever, but it, I want people to know what it's like to shoot a live round. Mm-hmm. And it's important to do that when you have an idea to just do it and keep, to keep it simple at first. But that is very different to the cooking that Corey does. I don't think you would ever just, let's fucking put it on, let's just see what the fuck happens. That doesn't happen often, but there are definitely <laughs> times when someone comes to the restaurant and I didn't know a, a regular friend was on that table and I'll do a very impromptu dish because I want them to have it or I know they'll enjoy it or because something that we're serving is something they had maybe a month ago. And that happens a lot. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not devoid of spontaneity necessarily. What, what, what about like what, one of your other restaurants, like Monster Benjamin or something? Where uh, Yeah, that, that, that usually doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> that probably wouldn't happen. But let's just go back to this thing about uh, sauce per biche that Dave was talking about for a second. Because I find that really interesting, right? So this, you have a young cook and he's like, hey, chef, uh, I, I did this sauce with like hardball egg yolks or whatever, right? And you're like, dude, that's been done 200 years ago. It's called sauce per beach. Does that take away any of the success in him, him discovering that on his own? It is all about intent. It's about intent, right? If someone is just like, you can tell a lot about a person before they even happens, right? If someone was a student and someone cared about it, then... No, it's, it's going to be like, actually, you missed this. But a lot of it is the attitude, especially if you're a younger cook, and young has nothing to do with age. You're just relatively new in this business. And all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, I'm creating shit. I'm fucking awesome. That kind of bravado, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. And that's almost always the case where someone's like, yeah, I've basically invented this. You know, that feeling yeah, yeah, of ownership, yeah. that, that drives me insane. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that. It's intent. It's also how you take, I mean, listen, like Dave and I don't work in a kitchen together, but we work in a creative field together. And I, I'll occasionally get feedback from Dave. That's like, I'll be like, Dave, I think I cracked it. I came up with this great idea. And he'd be like, I watched that 
exact show you're talking about on History Channel last night. Like, do your fucking <laughs> do your fucking homework. And it depends. It's intent, but it's also like how good you are at receiving criticism and how how invested you actually are in not just getting credit for something or or getting a pat on the back, but really developing. And when Dave says something like that to me, my reaction over time has become like. I need to work harder to like make sure I'm I'm studying all of the things around me. You know, if if I was making that sauce scribbish and he'd be like this has already been done 200 years ago, I would take that in in my current late 30s self to be like shit, that was embarrassing and I need to like study up harder. But probably when I was younger I'd be like fuck Dave, don't be so mean to me. I I I thought I invented it. <laughs> you know, so I think it's intent but also just like how committed you really are to getting better at something. But Corey, what I was going to say about your your sort of editing in your head thing, I actually think a couple of, I think a couple of dishes come to mind in a different way at Bennu. Like you do the 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 thousand year egg, the century egg, sorry, and you do like your soup dumplings, two dishes that actually most people would think to take on and be like, nah, fuck it, like it's too hard. I'm not going to even try. And like you, like I I got. I'm going to take a wild guess that neither one of those dishes you got right on the first try. <laughs> like. Oh and, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of dishes on on our menu um, that were really difficult to get to a point where we can actually serve it, and even more difficult to get to a point where I was really happy with it or proud to serve it. And yeah, it's it's a, it's a iterative process of studying, of learning, and trying. But I think that's about technique. It is and it is. You could have stopped though. You could have read about it. You could have read about all the fucking like science and technique that goes into it and been like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You know what? Yeah. Let's, I, I, I'm sorry, sorry. It just, you brought up the fucking century quail egg. This motherfucker, Corey, is a fucking artist. <laughs> Fuck you, Corey Lee. You fucking artist motherfucker. <laughs> Good. Talk about art. This is yeah. the biggest, like one of the, like the most fuck yous you could possibly have as a fir- like first tasting in your menu. It is a giant fuck you, and you know it, Corey. It is a subversive fuck you to everything and to everyone. And well, I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. <laughs> Explain what you're talking about, Dave. Tell them why. Tell people why it's a fuck you. Uh, you don't give that to white people. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like you know, it's usually served with like kanji or something like that. It's a highly acquired taste different texture it is something that is very familiar to some and very foreign to others that one dish encapsulates your entire fucking career for me because it shows you the ambition the knowledge the skill the technique the finesse in something that is very just a bite and a small bite that is packed with history, with crazy amount of flavor that can be divisive. It tells you everything about the meal you're going to have, which is why I put that in one of the great, great things of how you could even start a meal. That is art. Like, how the fuck are you... The reason why I say it's art too is that can mean something different to so many different people. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, I I think our our profession has the potential to be the most expressive art form. I do. I, I, I truly believe that. I also think that that's something that you realize later because there's no way someone who's 20 years old starting out in this business for the first time should be burdened or should be entitled 
to think that way. And that, that's, that was kind of what I was alluding to. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I appreciate that he did not disagree with the fuck you-ness <laughs> of that. Of the quail egg. He knows it is. Look, yeah, he's going to now yeah, try to back yeah. a little bit. He knows. <laughs> it's he knows. Like, oh, genius, no, no, genius. But, no, to, but to get back to that, that dish and, and how it relates to this, this rule 17 about don't it in your head. What I mean is it was the process of figuring out technique that that was really hard. But the desire to serve that in the way that we serve it, that came through just editing my head. Like I saw the dish before we started trying to make it. And I don't think I would have been able to do that when I was younger. You know, that, I think that skill comes with, with experience, don't you? 100%. But yeah. I think the artistry really comes with so much packed meaning in it. And again, it's so complicated. Yet so simple. I really think it's just one of the best things you've ever done. I don't like the taste of it because I don't like century <laughs> eggs. Oh my you know, god, he very. I don't. I, I know. I don't. I, it's a very well-made egg. I, I just. I fucking find century eggs to be repulsive. But that's just me. <laughs> but I, I'll eat it. I mean, like I like bits of it in my kanji, but, but it's not I something like, ooh, I gotta fucking have it. It's I a way of preservation. That. That's basically why it was invented. But it's not something I'm like, oh, I'm craving century egg. No, I can't I'm not. believe you're like, this is one of the seminal dishes of modern gastronomy. <laughs> this is one of the most creative, important, technique-driven, brass balls, fuck you dishes ever to be put on a menu. I think it's gross. So I can't taste it. <laughs> 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 this basically sums up your career, but I don't yeah. like it. <laughs> I just, I don't like, I love it, and but I, it's not like I, I want to taste a century egg. I'm just being very honest. And it doesn't mean I, it, any of what I said is taken away from that meaning. And again, what I love most is you're taking, it's so respective of Chinese cuisine and the complexities of it because you're not doing it with a, a hen egg or a duck egg. You're doing it with a quail egg, something that you almost never, I don't think I've ever seen that, which is why, again, you've done that. It shows you about originality. That's another thing is I want diners to feel the same way about your fucking food that I do. And I'm constantly underwhelmed and tired of the lack of knowledge or care about food. And I, it's not just the diner. I also would translate or carry that over to cooks. Is this is your profession, man? You should be endlessly fascinated. I wish we. Yeah. This could just be a, a, a this conversation could just be dissecting dishes, and yeah. Corey and I could talk days and days and days and not be bored by it. Well, I think Dave, you're going to get your wish, and and uh, I think this this situation that we're in is definitely going to um, accelerate that process. It probably would happen in some ways anyway, uh, like you said, but I definitely think it's going to be accelerated about everything that's going on. You know, if you, if you think about the people who are going to be here when, when this is over and we get a chance to rebuild, it'll be more of the kind of people that you're talking about. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. <sighs> Corey, are you keeping your chin up, man? Are you, are you, uh, how are you, how are you faring, man? We haven't even really asked you, like, how are you feeling about things at the moment? I mean, you're so level headed, but. Yeah, I've been okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I've been, no, I've been okay. It's definitely been a challenging process for us because as I said earlier, we didn't, we didn't expect this thing to last this long. And I wish I had planned for it, um, in a way where the decisions we made early on were sustainable, uh, for a longer period and just trying to 
create a band-aid solution for our staff mainly and get them through the next few months. Um, so right now we're, we're, we're in a, uh, we're in a position where we have a couple of different kinds of programs running at two of our restaurants at least. And we're trying to get to a place where they can operate in that fashion for another year if they have to, because they can sustain themselves. So that's what we've been working on recently, but it's a, it's a hard process, man. Yeah. Can you talk about your new venture that we talked about yeah, last so, podcast, but now it's, it's here. Yeah. Well, kind of here. Um, so we were, we've been working at this Korean restaurant forever. You know, I've been wanting to do that for a long time. I've talked to both of you guys about this over the years. Um, and this thing's going to be finished in terms of being built and, and furnished probably a good half year before we're going to open it because no one's ready to go out to a restaurant. No one wants to hear about a new restaurant. I mean, who cares right now? So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll keep it in terms of, um, just running it as this pilot takeout program and, and trying to keep it afloat in that way and sustain the small staff that we have, we have for that project. Uh, but it's also been, you know, the one bright spot in all this where, like I said, I'm really excited about the food that we're working on and the food that we're serving. You know, we get to, we get to experiment with a lot of things and I am engaged in this process in a completely different way than I would have been if I was still trying to operate Benno every night uh, while this is opening or worried about this going on at that restaurant while this is opening. Um, this is kind of where my attention is. So working on this with our chef, Jung-in Hong, who's, who's going to be the chef there, and then him having the support of really all these chefs around him that he probably wouldn't have the support of if he was opening this restaurant in a different time. That's been um, a really unique way to get ready for a restaurant opening that I don't think would ever happen otherwise. It's so fucking good, man. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I was hoping you would never open this goddamn place because now I'm like, <laughs> when are you going to open a Korean restaurant, Dave? I'm like, N not anymore. <laughs> Because every dish that I do is like, well, it's not as good. Or, the, you know, it's going to be like, this is like my version of Sauce Oh, Corey's already done it. <laughs> uh, that's not true. But I got to say, you know, af after, after working for basically my entire career, either in Western restaurants or in a restaurant that is, is not really about just cooking traditional food, to be able to fully immerse myself in a cuisine that I have such a strong history and connection with just, just being Korean has been such a restorative thing for me, uh, during this whole time. And it really, it really showed me or reminded me kind of just the power of food and the power of, of memory and how those things are related. And that's been kind of a savior for, for a lot of people on our team right now. I, for one, am, am very excited to get to eat there and to see all of the, dishes that I've only seen on Instagram. Um, I wanted to ask this one question because it's what I've been asking myself quite a bit and wanted to get your thoughts as we talk about what will be a reconstruction period of our business, hopefully for the better, because it's clear that whatever was working before was not working at all. It was a bubble built on a faulty foundation. And as we talk about the industry moving forward and it be more equitable and fair and less of whatever the badness it was before cultures that we both came from and saw do you think that the brigade system works anymore it's not an easy question to answer because i can see the merits of why it works but also is it the systemic reason for all of the problems of our business too 
Well, I think we need to define the brigade system. So you want, you want to talk about that a little bit, Dave? Chris, you want to talk about the brigade system? <laughs> uh, like the, the, what it is in the history of the brigade system? Yeah, people need to know. Yeah, people don't know. I mean, so Escoffier, when sort of trying to figure out how a professional kitchen should run, looked to his own military background and modeled a system of organization and flow within a kitchen off of the military. Highly specialized positions, saucier, grill cooks, saute cooks, pantry cooks, all sort of quarantined off with centralized power, who's, who's sort of dictating how everything should flow with the sort of vociferousness and, and viciousness of a drill sergeant. But everything is segmented off. You are the low man on the totem pole or you're not. And all directives come from one centralized place. And that, that is the, the brigade. Jesus, Ian, you just had that on top of your head? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Who know, man. This guy? I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 I like, if, if, I, uh, if I couldn't I, answer that question, I needed to just walk out of here, I guess. <laughs> is, uh, is Tom Cruise waiting for you in a convertible outside? <laughs> <laughs> Judge Wapner. Right. Uh, oh, court. my God. I got set up. I got set up so hard here. <laughs> Neither one of you wanted to spout off that nerd shit, and then you're like, uh, "Chris, you want to do it?" Because, because Corey, I, I, I don't know. I, I, if we're gonna overhaul this industry, I wonder how. Well, let me just ask. I, I mean, this is literally what I'm trying to ask myself all the time. If we get rid of the brigade system, how the fuck would a kitchen work? And I continue to go to how fast food industries are set up. Well, I think, I think. Uh... Before we talk about whether the brigade system is something that, that we should return to or something that um, is the best way to manage a kitchen, I think we have to talk a little bit about how restaurants are critiqued and reviewed because I think it's, they're, they're related. And as Ying was saying, it comes from this military setup, right? Well, when you're talking about a military setup, you're talking about going to war uh, where the stakes are so high and you need this this system where someone makes a decision and people just need to react and respond to that right away without question. And that's how kitchens are set up. And part of it is because as chefs and as restaurant owners, we've been conditioned to think that if there's one plate that goes out, that's wrong. That could be the end of your, your reputation or your career or, or any kind of accolade that you've earned, right? So I think that mentality really needs to change. You know, the idea of one reviewer coming into a restaurant anonymously and saying, oh, this is under season. Uh, that's it. I'm going to come out with a two-star review that affects you with millions of dollars of revenue that affects dozens of, of employees. It's just not a healthy situation. And, you know, you have this, this pressure cooker that's going to go off when you, when you have people operating, thinking that, you know, they're always on the edge of failure. So I think that needs to change and, and they're related. It all kind of ha has to happen together. But let's just say that does change. Which changes the, the well, process well, the, of the, like the media, the, 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 the pressure that's placed upon yeah. a restaurateur chef. Let's just say, imagine that's gone. If we had the ability to just like God redo the industry in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really question, I don't, Obviously, I have nostalgia for, for the old way because that's how I learn. That's how you learn. What is the potential new way? I don't think it's inherently flawed. I mean, 
at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Dave, you you have, you know, you have many restaurants and you have chefs at each of those restaurants. And you have talented chefs working for you where they've built kind of um their own following, right? On their own. But still people are coming to experience a certain kind of cuisine or, or a certain association with you, right? So I think I do think that it's important that there is some sort of hierarchy in place. And in, the, in, a, in a way where like all companies are set up and all corporations are set up yep. because not everyone is going to agree on, on, you know, the garnish that you should put on a dish or how something should be cooked. And at the end of the day, you as, as the person that people are, are coming to visit, you know, you need to decide what that is. Um, so I think there needs, there does need to be some kind of hierarchy place. There's nothing inherently wrong with the brigade system. I think it's the, the military like atmosphere that sometimes results from, uh, from a structure like that. That's what really needs to change. Yeah. But that's related to just the pressures of running a, a business that's so fragile. The pressures of someone coming in and complaining about your meal and dismissing, you know, you as a restaurant. I, I think that's not a good situation. In some ways, in a different way to think about this, and again, I guess I've had the time to think about it, and it's something that has been percolating for a long time, ever since we redid the co and we moved it. I remember having an argument with Sean. It was an argument. It was a discussion. I, I said, we don't need to have a giant island range. We don't. I just but don't you, believe but you do. it anymore. But you do, right? I don't think we do. I, I actually oh, think, it's a, I think, it's, I think it's unnecessary. I think there's new ways to do a kitchen design where you don't need it. Because that was set up for coal ovens. Wait, at Co, you don't have a you don't have a large island. Scoop? No, we do have a giant island, and I actually think it's unnecessary. I wanted to go all induct like small induction, not like Alinea. Like when Grant made Alinea, I remember like, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> you can't cook that way. <laughs> but again, he was just ahead of the curve. And and I don't know if it has to be to that degree, but I think it's a vestige of the old and so much of how we think, again, going even back to using a gram scale or something like that. I don't know if it's necessary. And and there's other ways to set it up. And that's what I keep on thinking. If we go back to the Escoffier ways, is it even applicable anymore in terms of how many kitchens are set up? And I'm pretty sure if we had to do it all over again, I'd love to talk to Sean. I think he even said it. I don't think we would have had a giant, beautiful stove. I think it would have been much smaller in different ways. Hmm. That's interesting. What about yours? Like Benu's setup is beautiful, but do you still need it that way? You know what? So we read the the, uh, the stove setups and all the, the lines about two years ago, and I thought a lot about it. Um, and I try, you know, I try to think about different scenarios. And for us and the kind of menu that we run, I couldn't think of a more efficient way. Although there's an act, there's a physical suite there. And we have stations that are called fish and meat because we don't have anything better to call them. And that's really why they're called fish and meat. It doesn't function in that way where you have one, one guy who just does the veg and one person who does all the meats and sauces. It's not set up in that way. But the physical layout of having this central island that's supplemented by a line was the most efficient way uh, that I can think of running the menu that we do. I, I guess what I mean is it doesn't go hand in hand with the brigade system. I mean, do you think it does? I think it does. I do. So, because when I think of Brigada, I, I don't think it more like there's a chef and a, then there's sous chefs and there's, you know, chef de parties and demis and, and commis. I, I'm thinking about it in terms of that kind of setup. And that too. I, I'm thinking about the same way, but I, 
that classic French setup where you need 40, 50 cooks, that literally is the environment that makes it potentially toxic too, right? And I think one way to maybe make the environment better is to decentralize the cooking. And I don't know how that's done. I'm really wrestling with that because if you're going to design kitchen, I I think we're going to open more restaurants hopefully one day. And I'm just, I'm always like, fuck, I don't think you need a goddamn giant range. You don't need a suite. Well, so I spent time in uh, in the Fuklan Moon Kitchen in Hong Kong, right? Legendary Hong Kong restaurant, iconic place, uh, third generation. And if you ask the, uh, a chef there, what do you think about the Brigade They wouldn't even know what it is. So they have no reference to Scoffier or the Brigade system. But when you really study how it's working, it's completely different at first, but actually it's kind of similar. So they have no, they have no mise en place. There's no mise en place really in, in a Chinese kitchen, right? You get an order in, on a, a cloth pin, they put the ticket and it goes to the refrigerator area. And there's one person in the refrigerator that gathers the raw ingredients for that order and puts it in a basket. That person then hands it to the next person who takes the veg and does all the cutting. That person then passes it to the saute or the steam or the fry or whatever. And it's, it resembles nothing like a Western kitchen, but actually there is a hierarchy in place and mm-hmm. there is a regard. It's just taken on a different form. So that's what I mean when I say like, no, I and, 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 and I wanted to bring layout. that up too, because the hole in whatever I'm talking about was all my time I spent in Japan. Because if you go to like Kikunoi, it's set up exactly like, you know, Tuagro. It's exactly, the kitchen is exactly like that. But if you go to yeah. other restaurants that are like, some are like 300 years old, it doesn't have a centralized kitchen, but it's still operating under some rigid hierarchy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. And that's not based on the French military system. And I'd argue probably the most fucked up shit I've ever seen, I've, I've seen in Japanese kitchens too. So I <laughs> yeah, just it's, wondering. Under, it's operating under, the, yeah, it's operating under the Japanese military system, which is far scarier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, I, I just, I wonder if cooking in kitchens is inherently a command and control structure. My two cents on this, I, I do think, Corey, you you hit the nail on the head in that sort of, the fact that all of this stems from a militaristic approach is the is the larger problem. I know. Um, I think it's it's that we live in a we we work in a pressure cooker, right? Yeah. Or or that like those stakes feel are, are made to feel like life and death of the critic walks in, right? Like I, right, I right, agree right, with right, that. Right. Well, not even just a you know critic, but that's how it's set up. It's 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 a military like system which operates in a way where the stakes are that high, yeah. and that's what needs to change. The stakes are not that high. On the other hand, I, I agree with, I really appreciate the, the line of thinking that Chang is pushing here because, I, not that I want to like give credit to the tech world. The last thing I want to do as a, as a resident of San Francisco is give credit to the tech world. But no, no industry thinks harder about workflow than, than the tech industry. And they look high and low, way outside of their realm to try to find more efficient, more productive ways of operating. And Escoffier turned to the military because that seemed to be the most efficient thing. That was his experience. And so, you know, I, I hear you guys talking about it. And I do think that there is probably, an, at the very least, an important exercise to be done here to look outside of how other kitchens have done it, how, how outside of like your own system. Otherwise, it's just an echo chamber. I'll, you know? give you my, I'll tell you exactly where I'm looking. And I have been looking for quite some time. It's In-N-Out. It's McDonald's. It's Chick-fil-A. I am studying how they're set up more than anything else. I think I, I can't figure it out. I don't know what the trick is. How do you set it up where 
you never see yelling in a fast food kitchen. At least I don't. You never, it seems to be always calm and orderly and they have baked in all contingencies for different times throughout the day. They've automated what needs to be automated. They've implemented basically AI ordering system that sort of figures out the best way to fire tickets and everything. And I wonder if the culture of cooking, not every restaurant, is still allergic to the idea of the new. And that's basically what I wanted to ask or just pontificate on is I still think a lot of the independent high-end restaurants, those that try to win accolades, are still allergic to changing what's worked for them in the past. And I'm willing to look like an idiot, to throw it all away, to find something that's better. And the last thing I would ever say as a 22-year-old in the industry would be like, yeah, I want to pattern a kitchen after a McDonald's. But I think there's more there than I would care to admit. Well, I think there's a lot to be learned from the, from food prepared at the initial level. I fully embrace anything that we can learn from their processes and their approach to making things consistent. I think actually one of the things that's really noticeable when you come into the Benner kitchen is, is that there's just so many protocols involved from how something's received to how it's prepped. There's, there's really, I, I've tried to eliminate all the variables that can possibly happen. And it's hard for a lot of people to adjust to that. You know, when it comes from a different kitchen that's not set up in a similar way because it's so systematic. And I think that's part of what fast food does is they try to take all the variables out of it. And in some ways, as a cook on the line, it's a little bit less fun. And that's the, that's a big adjustment for, for a lot of these cooks who, who are coming here. Um, and it's very systematic. But I guess what I mean is I don't know if the physical setup is necessarily related to or is what's causing um, problems that we need to change in terms of the brigade. Uh, I do think that you still need people no, in charge. I don't know yeah. either, Corey, but I think it's we're at a point where we need to question anything and everything, right? Um, one more thing before I let you get to real life and not talking to us. What are your thoughts on automation? Because I've met a variety of people over the years that think that we will be replaced by robots. Um, so I just being in San Francisco and uh, kind of seeing this stuff emerge and talking to people who are working on this. In fact, uh, just on the same block as us is a burger place that's automated like 90% of their, of their system. Um, I think there's, it's coming. It's definitely going to happen. It's already happening. Actually, some of it's been happening for years now. It's tough because, you know, I mean, automation is responsible for so much of, of the joblessness in, in, in our country and around the world, right? I mean, that's probably the number one cause of, of people being displaced in their jobs, but it's going to happen. And I think at the fine dining level, I don't think we'll see it in our lifetime. I think we're dealing with products that are organic and they change from day to day, from hour to hour, that you can't automate that. And you're still going to need the human senses to get involved in, in determining how to prepare something uh, one minute from another. And that's what's going to differentiate fine dining. All right, I don't know. What do you think, Dave? What do you think, Ying? I think it'll happen sooner than the end of our lives. It is around the corner. Not just fine dining level. I, it's not everything. There's going to be no scenario where all humans are gone. Walk me through that. So 
it sounds like you support this, right? You're like, this is something that you're very interested in. This is something that you no, want to explore. No, 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 and- no. I, I'm, I'm interested in because I don't want to be left without a seat when the music stops, right? I always want yeah, to look yeah. around the corner, see what worst possible scenario. That's why I try to do delivery service businesses before anyone else and all this shit because I care about this business. And I think the better we understand it, the better we can plan for it. And that's what I want all of us to do is to be better prepared for the unknown. And we can't say that it's not possible because maybe there's a, not the silver lining, but maybe there's something about it that can make it more equitable and make our industry better. I don't know. And the reason why I bring this up is think about the last automation that changed our industry, at least in fine dining restaurants, was the dishwasher. Anyway, uh, we're going to end this because Corey's got to actually work service. And no, we'll no, have- no, I don't have to work service. I was, I was just giving you shit. Yeah, my, some of my guys might hear me like, bullshit, he has to work service. <laughs> 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 but Corey's got to go. And listen, we could talk to him forever. And let's have Corey back on as soon as we can. But it's good to catch up with you and um, and just shoot the shit. So uh, good you, to buddy. We see miss you. you man. We miss you. And if you want to taste some of this food, list all your restaurants and where they can get information, Corey. You can get takeout at uh, for our Santa Juan program, which is our new Korean restaurant. Just go on Talk uh, through Benu's website, and then our bistro in Hayes Valley. Mr. Benjamin is doing outdoor and uh, takeout as well. Go get some of that. It's delicious stuff. All right, man. Give us five stars. How do you rate this? Bye. <laughs>